0: fear and anxiety and depression are common themes in our world and in our experience we may in the midst of the conflict going on over in Europe be on the brink of world war 3 our culture is in the midst of social experimentations in relationship to Marriage and relationship to manhood and womanhood. We have government leaders that are intentionally running this country and most of Western culture into the ground. You may think, well, Matt, I wasn't really anxious before I came in this morning, but now you got me all in a panic. The reality is is that we have tons of stuff around us to be fearful and anxious about. And the last time I checked the numbers, I think it's roughly 25, 30% of people in our country have been diagnosed with either clinical depression or some kind of anxiety disorder. Fear and anxiety and depression are not anything new in our culture today. In fact, it was the disciples themselves that are the recipients of this instruction from Jesus that he says, he writes these things, he tells them these things, he's teaching these things so that they would have peace. You see, they too were in a situation where they were tempted towards anxiety and depression, and fear, because their master, the one who had been teaching them, leading them for the past three and a half years, the one who they had put all their hope and confidence and trust in, was now going to depart from them. He was going to die. And this was going to leave their entire universe upheaved. And as a loving and kind shepherd he's teaching them, instructing them and teaching them in anticipation of what is going to happen. This is in the upper room. This is the evening before Jesus' execution. He's giving them final instructions before he's going to depart. And he's already touched on this theme of peace that he would be leaving with them. Earlier on in this, in chapter 14, in verse 27, it says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. In fact, I I think an argument could be made that one of the grand overarching themes of these chapters in 13 through 17 is Jesus wants his disciples to have peace. In fact, this section that we'll be looking at more closely in verse 33, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, notice the purpose clause, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage I have overcome the world. So the rest of our time this morning, I want to give to you four truths about God so that you will have peace in this world of tribulation. The first is to believe in a listening God. Notice in verse 23... In that day, Jesus says, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. So notice this repeated phrase throughout this section. In that day. In that day. An hour is coming. And this is not new in this section. But Jesus says in verse 23. In that day you will not question me about anything. What's the day that he's referring to? Well, we might think he's talking about the the day of his death or maybe the day of his resurrection. But if you observe the time period between Jesus' resurrection and what we see in the book of Acts, they still had a lot of questions. They're still asking many questions. So I think it's probably better to understand that day as the day of Pentecost, which would make sense because Jesus is anticipating in the calendar of redemption his going through his death and resurrection and the coming of whom? The coming of the Holy Spirit, right? In fact, he says in this context, a very shocking statement. He says, it's better for me to go or it's to, my, to your advantage that I go so that what? You will have the helper, the Holy Spirit. So it's, it, it, it includes... The day would certainly include the events of the death and resurrection of Jesus, but through the Holy Spirit enabling them to understand the death and resurrection of Jesus, all of a sudden it would click for the apostles. Ah, now I understand why you had to die. I understand the resurrection. I understand all these things that were needful. But at this point, the disciples, it's, it's not clear for them. So he says, in that day, they are not going to have any more Q&A sessions with Jesus. Things will become more clear. And then Jesus says, until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. Jesus says, says to the disciples, you you haven't asked anything in my name. Now, I I don't think by that, Jesus obviously doesn't mean you've never prayed before, but you've never prayed in my name. You've never prayed in Jesus' name. Now, there's a a reason for that because they did not understand and comprehend the fullness of who Jesus is. They didn't even understand, uh, I think, the implications of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus that gave them access to, To Jesus, er, access to the Father, because apart from Jesus' work on the cross, we don't have access to the Father. And so praying in Jesus' name is praying in consistency with Jesus' character and even with the authority of Jesus. Now, sometimes we use that phrase, in Jesus' name almost like a stamp before you drop it in the, you know, in the mail. I got to say in Jesus' name or it won't get delivered. Or it's like, a, you know, 10-4 over and out on the radio. Uh, but... The formula, the statement in Jesus' name is is actually, we don't find actually any prayers in the New Testament where anybody says in that prayer in Jesus' name. So it's more of a concept than it is a phrase that has to be uttered. It's a concept, the reality that we must pray according to the authority of Jesus And we must pray according to the character of Jesus. Apart from Jesus, we don't have the listening ears of the Father. Unless you are united to Jesus, unless you are connected to Jesus, you don't have access to the Father. There's a story During the Civil War, there was a man who had lost his brothers and his father during that Civil War. And he wanted to make an appeal to the President of the United States, to Abraham Lincoln, to, to be able to have a relief of his duty so that he can bury his brothers and father. And so he made his way to Washington and he comes to the White House and he's hoping to get in to have access to Abraham Lincoln but the guards on duty say you, you have no access to him. We're in the midst of a war. The president is busy. And so he just sat close by on a step near the White House just sobbing. And then a little boy came up to him and said, Sir, is everything okay? And the man explained something of the situation to the young boy, and the young boy said, Here, come on with me. And sure enough, that little boy went past the guards and beckoned the man to come behind him. And that little boy didn't even knock on the door, but he just barged right into where the president was at. And the president says to that little boy, son, can I help you? It was Lincoln's son. And the boy said, yes, this man has a request for you. You see, this man was able to get access to the president of the United States because he had a connection to the son of the president. In a similar way, because of one's union to Jesus, when you trust in Jesus, you have access to the Father. You can go before the Father and bring your requests in Jesus' name. You belong in the throne room of the Father because of Jesus. And as such, you bring your requests according to the character of Jesus because of who He is and the mission of Jesus to glorify His name in this world through the salvation of sinners. It is a tremendous tragedy that often this asking in Jesus' name is abused by the prosperity preachers as a kind of name it and claim it, blab it and grab it theology. without even understanding its tremendous implications to pray in Jesus' name is to pray with Jesus' authority because you are connected to Him. And this is for our joy. Notice from verse 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. The Father delights to grant the request of His children in the name of Jesus. parents, think of the joy that you often experience in giving gifts to your children. You know, it usually happens sometime before Christmas or sometime before a birthday and your, your children start putting in their request. Dad, I would like this. And you usually shrug it off. and ah, you know, Maybe, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. That's my line. I'll think about it. What's that mean, Dad. It means it doesn't mean yes, it doesn't mean no. It means I'll think about it. But you delight to grant gifts. To give that which is requested, to see the joy. It is, it is one of those transitions in life where, where, where you have the joy. You know, when you're young, it's the joy of opening the gifts. It's, when you're older, there seems to be a greater joy in the giving of gifts. Well, the Father does this and and He delights to see the smile on His children's face as He grants that which is requested. And especially as those requests are in line with with what He has revealed about who He is. And then in verse 26, it says, in that day you will ask in My name. And He says, and I do not say that I will request of the Father on your behalf. In other words, these are actually your requests that you're bringing. It's not my request on your behalf, although that is true. We do see Jesus interceding on behalf of his people, but Jesus is saying, no, you actually have access to the Father because of me. It was the English Baptist Puritan John Bunyan who said, You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. John Gerhardt said, The benefit of prayer is so great that it cannot be expressed. Prayer is a dove which. Sent out returns again, bringing with it in all of peace, namely peace of heart. Prayer is Moses' rod, which brings forth the water of consolation out of the rock of salvation. Prayer is Samson's jawbone, which smites down our enemies. Prayer is David's heart, before which the evil spirit flies. Prayer is the key to heaven's treasure. And again, think about this connection in the context of Jesus saying I'm saying these things so that in me you may have peace. There's that connection between peace of the heart, a kind of calmness of the soul, and us being able to bring our requests before God. Haven't you noticed that it's often those areas of life in which we have zero control over that we tend to be most anxious over? We can't do anything about it, but somehow we spend all of this mental energy worrying and fretting and and, and fearful over things that we have zero control over. But we do know one who does have control. And this is why in the Scriptures there's often that connection between bringing our request before God and the peace that God grants in the midst of that. Remember Philippians 4, 6, and 7? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving in your heart, let your requests be made known to God. And what? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but instead, lay your request before the Father. And as you do that, as you lay your requests, as you pray in Jesus' name, there's a calmness of soul. God, you're in control of this. I lay this at your feet. And oh, what a good God we have. Because this is the wonder that we Sometimes our prayers are not answered exactly the way we want it, but God knows what's best for each of His children. In Matthew chapter 7, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, He he gives this graphic illustration. He says, uh, Or what man is there among you who when his son asks him for a loaf... Will he give him a stone? A child says, Daddy, I'm hungry. Can I have some bread? There's some cinder blocks over there. Why don't you go eat those? No, what father says that, right? And then he asks the question, or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? Will he? Daddy, I'm hungry. Can I have some fish? Don't you go play with those snakes over there? No, no. What father would do that? And then Jesus uses this argument from the lesser to the greater. He says, "If you, then being evil, know how to give good, good gifts to your children." He's, he says, "You guys are evil. You're not perfect fathers." You're tainted with selfishness and sinfulness. But you, even as sinful fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children. He says, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? friends this is the calmness and the peace that we can experience as we bring our requests before God knowing that he is a good father and however he answers our prayers it is for the good of each of his children and he delights to answer so friend do you do you frequent the throne of grace Do you humble yourself and bring your requests before God? All too often we, we don't pray, I know, in my own heart and life because, because of pride. We think, I can do this. I mean, I don't say that. I don't say, you know, I don't, I don't sing the anti- Lord, I need you. Lord, Lord, I don't need you. I don't need you. No, I don't sing that. I sing, Lord, I need you. But all too often, I, I, I don't really believe it. Because I don't pray like I should. We need to be desperate before God and to bring our requests before God and to know that peace rather than you know, there, there's that, that uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 says pray without ceasing. You know, sometimes we think, how, can I, how could I possibly pray without ceasing? But you know how to worry without ceasing, don't you? Maybe if you just flip that and, and prayed without ceasing instead of worrying without ceasing, you'd have this peace that Jesus promises. So, first. First truth, you need to believe about God to have this peace. is Believe that he is a listening God. Secondly, believe that he is a loving God. Notice verse 26. Jesus says, in that day, you will ask in my name. I do not say that I will request of the Father on your behalf for, notice this, underscore it, highlight it, whatever you do for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Jesus now explains that our access to the Father is, is not such that Jesus brings the requests, but we bring these requests on our own because of our connection to Jesus. Notice he says here, the Father himself, verse 27, he loves you. And then it says, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Now, you may be tempted to choke on this. Wait, he loves me because I love his son? So that means... His love is dependent upon my love. Well, I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching here. I think what he's he's teaching is that this special love that the Father has, it's for his own. It's for those who are in the family. It's for those who love Jesus. This is a kind of love that that, that is not given indiscriminately to the world. Now, now that may sound difficult to some of you, but do you love everybody else's children the same way you love your own children? Do you love other women the same way you love your wife? I hope not. So so we understand, even in our human relationships, that there, there is a special kind of love that is reserved for those whom we are in closest relationship to. And so what Jesus is saying here, for the Father himself loves you. Oh, friends, what peace this should give your own hearts, to know that you are loved by the Father, and you are loved by the Father because of your connection with Jesus. My earthly father went home to be with the Lord some 6 years ago. And when we moved from California to Ohio, my wife began to have a friendship, a relationship with my father. And my my father loved my wife This was evidence when my wife almost died and was in the hospital for 20 days. My father was there alongside of me, hovering over the hospital bed. And my wife's family, who didn't know my father, would just watch on and think, wow, how much he loves her. And I began to realize that, that this same love that I had experienced all these years from my father, he was now giving to my wife. And at some point I realized because he knows that she loves me. And so this love in which he loves me, he loves my wife with because of her connection to me. Well, friends, in a similar way, The Father's love for the Son is the same love with which He loves you because of your connection to His Son. Oh, Christian, that you would believe in the Father's love, that you would know and experience the calmness of the soul, this peace that Jesus speaks of here because you know that you are loved and cared for by the Father. This world isn't in, in utter chaos and upheaval, but to know that the one who is in control of it all, the one who is the sovereign of the universe, you are the apple of his eye. He cares for for you in a special, unique way as one of his own dear children, that you are part of the new creation that he is going to birth forth in the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. All too often, I think, Christians suffer from what Sinclair Ferguson calls the Sinister syndrome, having s- thoughts of God that He's sinister. I mean, you, you get Jesus' love, right? You know, I know Jesus loves me, but but somehow you've you, you've got this erroneous thinking in your heart that, that 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 though Jesus loves you, the Father, it's a different story. He's He's upset at you. He's angry with you. And perhaps you even have this kind of skewed thinking that, that, that Ferguson calls the great evangelical heresy that the father is angry with you but, but you know, Jesus kind of steps in and, and he persuades the father to not be so angry with you. But you see friends, even from this gospel itself that which motivated the father to send the son was the father's love, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. That God, Romans 5:8 demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us so if you were to trace the love of God it goes all the way back to the heart of the Father in this great plan of redemption He loves you if you are one of His children here this morning if you are trusting in Jesus you have this special love from the Father John Owen, the English Puritan, in his classic book, it's called *Communion with God*. And in this book, he he argues that the Christian can enjoy communion and fellowship with each person of the Trinity. And in his section about God the Father, he says, "How then?" He asks the question, "How then?" Is this love of the Father to be received so as to hold fellowship with Him? I answer, He says, by faith. The receiving of it is the believing of it. God hath so fully, so eminently revealed His love that it may be received by faith. It is true that there is not an immediate act acting of faith upon the Father, but by the Son. Owen says, how do you know, how do you experience, how do you receive this love? You have to believe. God's not going to believe for you. You have to believe it. You have to believe that He actually loves me. Do you believe? Do you believe it? The Father's not shy in saying it. I mean, read your Bible, right? He says, I love you over and over and over and over again. It's not because of the lack of Him saying it. It would only be because of the lack of you believing it that you fail to experience it. And understand this peace that again is closely related to knowing and believing in this love. first way to this peace is believe in the listening God, secondly, to believe in the loving God, thirdly to believe in the present God, that he is there. Notice as Jesus talks here in verse 29, his disciples said, Lo, you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and you have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. God. And this is quite an affirmation. They're saying, we, we know who you are now. We believe in who you are. But then notice this in verse 31. But Jesus said, do you now believe? And, and this, is, this is kind of a subtle rebuke that Jesus is giving because Jesus knows that their faith is not as strong as they think it is. I mean, remember, it was just not long ago that, that Peter told Jesus, Jesus... A minute to the finish. Me and you, we're tight. I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. And then some little girl within hours from now says uh, to, to Peter, uh, Aren't you one of his disciples? No. And so Jesus knows this so he, he challenges them on this. In verse 31, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Jesus is telling his disciples they are going to abandon him. And this this... Uh, On the heels of what we just said, Jesus just said the Father himself loves you. This should be staggering because he loves them despite the reality they are going to fail him miserably. They are going to abandon Jesus. They are going to abandon his son the very next morning and he still loves them. But Jesus wants them... He wants them to be cautious about how sweet they think they are. Reminds us of Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 10:14, he who thinks he stands take heed lest he should fall. But then notice what Jesus says here. And he's teaching his disciples by his own example of what he's going to do. He knows this is going to happen. He knows that in his greatest hour of temptation, everybody is going to forsake him. All of his friends are going to leave him. All those who've spent the past three and a half years devoted to Jesus are going to be running when he is in his hour of greatest crisis. And so he says, notice this phrase, look at it closely. In verse 32, he says, Each of you will be scattered to his own home to leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. That's gold. I will be alone, but I'm not alone. Why? Because the Father is is with me. This is huge, friends, to believe that God is with you in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the crises, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the tribulation. This makes all the difference in the world if you but but believe that He is with you. Some years ago, we were going to a wedding in Lake Tahoe. It was a December wedding in Lake Tahoe. And uh, I remember everybody kept complaining, who on earth would have a wedding in December in Lake Tahoe? I think, what's the big deal? So what? And then I would hear warnings from family members, oh, you got to be prepared, prepared for the snow in Lake Tahoe. <laughs> I'm from northeastern Ohio. I mean, I, I was 16 years old driving to Cleveland in a blizzard. I you know how to drive in the snow. Well, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he should fall. God had his way of humbling me through intense snowfall, a couple avalanches being stranded in Lake Tahoe. But at one point, we got stuck and looking at how much gas we have, looking at the snow coming down, thinking, if we run out of gas here, we may be frozen human popsicles. And I remember in the midst of that, we had three children at that point, Sitting in the back seat. Dad, when can we go, go outside and make snowmen? We're, I'm thinking we're on the brink of death. Perfect peace, perfect tranquility. Why? They were with Daddy. They were with Mommy. What's the big deal? No, in their case, it was a very, very much a false piece. <laughs> but with the Father in heaven, if you but believe that He is with you, that you know that the one who is in control of the entire universe, who controls the snowfall, He is with you. He is with you in the car. You can have this peace. And this connection, again, is often drawn out in Scripture, that that classic psalm that many of you have memorized, Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For what? You are With me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The psalmist, David says, I don't fear any evil. Why? How could you say that, David? And this was a man who who lived much of his life in the context of war, many dangers, toils, and fears. He says, for you are with me. How about Isaiah 41.10? Do not fear. Why? For I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do not fear. Why? Why, Isaiah? How are you going to tell me to not be afraid? For God is with you. How about Philippians 4, 5, and 6? We just mentioned it already about do not be anxious about anything, but in Philippians 4, 5, it says, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious for anything but in everything by prayer and supplication. The preamble of the command to not be anxious is the Lord is near. Near. If you but believe that, you can know this peace. So this peace is available if you believe in the listening God, if you believe in the loving God, if you believe in the present God, and now lastly, if you believe in the triumphant God. Notice verse 33. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may Have peace. Notice the connection. In me, you may have peace. Not outside of me. Jesus already said in chapter 14 that there is a peace of the world. There is a peace of the world. You can take enough sedatives in this world to have the world's peace. Peace. You can take enough tranquilizers to have the world's peace, but there is this peace that is available in me, Jesus says. And then he says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. Now, Reading this statement at face value, it seems kind of trite, right? You know, you're going through a, a very difficult situation. Somebody just says, take courage. Cheer up. And you just want to slap them, right? But Jesus says, take courage here. For I have overcome the world. This world has tribulations. It has difficulties. It has trials. If you haven't experienced tribulation in this world, you just need to live a little bit longer. It will come. You don't need to pray for it. You don't need to invite it. You don't need to provoke it. It will come. The phone call announcing the death of a loved one unexpectedly will come. The wayward child will come. The death of an unborn child, it will come. The cancer diagnoses, it will come. This world has tribulations. In the world, again, in this context in the Gospel of John, this is the world system that is in opposition to Jesus. The world system and all of its ideologies. Jesus is in this world in the context of all this rebellion, all these unbelieving thoughts and ideas, and and, and these people who want you dead. That's the context, right? Jesus has been telling his disciples, the world will hate you this same world jesus has overcome overcome the world what does jesus mean by this because we're living 2000 years out from jesus saying this and we look at the world and we think seems to be doing pretty well what does jesus mean by overcoming the world I think what Jesus means by this, remember, who is it who is the prince or the ruler of this world? Over and over throughout the Gospel of John, he said that Satan is the prince of this world, the ruler of this world. The Apostle Paul calls him the the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, the god of this age. God has given Satan a very long leash in this world. And this world is in rebellion against Jesus. But at the cross, at Jesus' death and resurrection, it was there that he cut the head off of the serpent. It was there that he conquered death. It was there that he dealt the death blow to the greatest problem in this world, namely our guilt before God and our rebellion against God. It was there at the cross that Jesus would overcome the world. But it was a down payment. You know, sometimes people ask, do you own your house? And you immediately think of how many more years (laughs) of payments you have to pay to the bank on your house. Do you own your house or don't you own your house? Well, you've made a down payment. And there is a promise at the end of those down payments that that house will legally and legitimately be your own. God in Jesus Christ makes a down payment. A down payment in overcoming the world at His death, at His resurrection. And this is a down payment that will be fulfilled at the coming, at the end of the age when Jesus comes back triumphant on His white horse and He claims His own and He brings His hammer of judgment on all that remain in rebellion against Him. Tomorrow we will celebrate or remember the 78th anniversary of D-Day during World War II when 24,000 American, British, and Canadian soldiers landed on the beaches of Normandy. And through that invasion, was able to strike a death blow to Nazi Germany D-Day it was a decisive victory but it would be a year later May the following year that would be V-Day Victory Day the day when finally Hitler and his forces declared defeat Friends, we live between D-Day and V-Day. D-Day at the cross where the Lord Jesus Christ triumphantly dies upon the cross crying, it is finished as he puts his foot upon the throat of the serpent, as he deals the death blow to death itself, as he rises from the dead at the end. But the story is not over. V Day is yet to come. And so, friend, have you put your hope and your trust in the Lord Jesus? Because He is the triumphant one. And you do not want to be on the opposite side of the enemy lines when He comes on V Day. And so you need to come to an understanding of your own rebellion against King Jesus. That you are guilty before Him. You have rebelled. You are disobedient. You have not honored God as you ought to in your own life. And there's nothing that you can do that can commend yourself before this holy God. And you, in your rebellion, you lay down your weapons of warfare before him. And you say, you are the king, you are the boss. And you trust that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, did all that was needed to make you reconciled before this God. And you trust wholly in what he did on the cross. And you turn from your rebellion and you follow him all the days of your life. And you can know that you are on the right side of history. For those of us who have put our hope and confidence in Christ, I want to tell you on the authority of God's Word this morning you can have this peace. Jesus has overcome the world. You know the final score. You know, it's like watching, uh, you know, sports history, classic sports channel, you know, where sometimes you'll come across a a classic game, a football game or a baseball game and you know the final scoreboard. You know what the end will be. You don't have to be biting your nails in the midst of it wondering, oh, I wonder who's going to win. In fact, if you're not sure who won, you could even Google it to save yourself some pain. Well, I'm telling you this morning, Jesus wins. And when we look at the world around us and the utter chaos and oblivion as this world shakes its fist against the Almighty and says, we will not have Him to rule over us. And our hearts almost shudder and we, we, we wonder like I don't want to be that close when <laughs> when the judgment comes. But the judgment will come. And we can plead with rebels while there is still time. Come on to the winning team before it's too late. But you know the final victory. You know that V Day is coming. D-Day has already happened. It's just a matter of time. This week I was reading about a woman in church history by the name of Ann Steele. I'd never really heard of her before. She was an English Baptist had come out of the Puritan tradition Her father was a pastor. At age three, she lost her mother. She developed what some people think was malaria over the years that made her an invalid for the rest of her life. She began to follow Jesus early in life. It was at age 14. That she was baptized. And those who knew her spoke of her tremendous joy in life. Despite her great suffering, her physical difficulties. And then she was engaged to be married. And her prospective groom died in a drowning accident. But still, Anne Steele in the midst of it had tremendous peace and she would go on to write many poems and hymns. In fact, one hymn that some people believe was written during this time when her fiancé had died. It's called, When I Survey Life's Varied Scene. She says, amidst the darkest hours, sweet rays of comfort shine between and thorns are mixed with flowers. Lord, teach me to adore thy hand from whence my comforts flow, and let me in this desert land a glimpse of Canaan know. In griefs and pains thy sacred word, dear solace of my soul, celestial comforts can afford in all their power control. When present sufferings pain my heart, or future tears arise, and light and hope almost depart from these dejected eyes. Thy powerful word supports my hope, sweet cordial of the mind, and bears my fainting spirit up, and bids me wait resigned. And oh, whatever of earthly bliss thy sovereign hand denies, Accepted at thy throne of grace, let this petition rise. Give me a calm, a thankful heart from every murmur free. The blessings of thy grace impart and let me live to thee. A woman who experienced this peace in the midst of great tribulation because she knew who to turn to. May God help us to do so. Let's pray.